a cuppa and a good chinwag? The story has real-life stories to inspire and make you smile. Weekdays on Vision and on demand in the app. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Now, it's been one of the biggest items in the news this week, the battle for the northern Iraqi city of Mosul. Now, from afar, here in our comfy conditions in Australia, you might say, it looked like a sweet victory for coalition forces. But a closer look shows that it's really very messy and the conflict may not be over yet. Amnesty International's accused not only the Islamic State group, uh, but also the Iraqi government and the US-led coalition, which includes Australia, might I say, of war crimes in the battle for Mosul. Well, overnight there is drone video footage of people crowded into the streets, unable to escape. Let's get some insights into the issues in Mosul today and try to understand the broader conflict that's going on in the Middle East, and really, for that matter, in so many places around the world. Elizabeth Kendall is an international religious liberty analyst and advocate. She serves as Director of Advocacy at Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom and is an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. A couple of books that I always make reference to when we are talking to Elizabeth Kendall. One of those, Turn Back the Battle. Isaiah speaks to Christians today. The other one, After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. Well, let's get some insights as to how things are unfolding in the Middle East, and a special welcome back to 2020 to you, Elizabeth Kendall. Hello, Neil. Thanks for having me again. Elizabeth, I always enjoy our conversations, and I know that listeners too uh, do as well, because I get so much good feedback when people say, I love listening to Elizabeth Kendall on the radio. So uh, a little bit of a pat on the back for you, uh, honour for your your capacity to be able to articulate these very, very complex issues that are going on around the world. Let's start with this unfolding news story this week. Uh, It is a huge story because Mosul uh, was the city that came under a attack at the start of the formation of the Islamic State or ISIS or ISIL and all of those different names that people have called this. So Mosul, having been so-called liberated this week, uh, is a major milestone. What are your thoughts on, on Mosul? Well, people need to consider who it is who has liberated Mosul. Now, certainly, you know, the Iraqi army is part of this equation, but just think back to, uh, you know, June and July of, uh, of uh, 2014 when ISIS uh, forces swept into Mosul. From, uh, they came up from Anbar province. They came in a convoy, an estimated 300 militants. That's all it was, about 300 members of ISIS came up from Anbar, swept into Mosul, took the city by surprise, and something like 25,000 members of the Iraqi army, who at this point are virtually all young Shiite recruits, dropped their weapons and ran for the hills, ripped off their army, ripped off their uniforms and headed for the hills as fast as, as their little legs could carry them. And at that point, uh, ISIS got itself established in Mosul. It headed towards Baghdad. 
and on the outskirts of Baghdad, on the outskirts of Samarra, near the big mosque there, uh, they threatened not just Baghdad, but Kabbalah and all the great Shiite holy sites of southern Iraq. And Ayatollah Sustaini then said that uh, he issued a fatwa, and he said anyone who would, would take a weapon uh, now has permission to fight ISIS. And, uh, and they came out onto the streets in masses. Uh, the Shiites of southern Iraq and Baghdad came out en masse to fight the approaching Sunni, Sunni terrorists. Uh, they were backed up by um, Iranian Revolutionary Guards forces from uh, Iran. And uh, gradually, they've, uh, the, the Iraqi military, which is mostly Shiite, has been uh, bolstered up with what they call these popular mobilised forces, these militias, most of which are being led by Iranian Revolutionary Guard uh, officers, and they have, you know, now three years down the track, taken the fight back to ISIS, and they have won it. So it isn't. This isn't just the Iraqi army. You know, the Iraqi army. Uh, at the time of Saddam was mostly a Sunni army, predominantly a Sunni army. Today it's prominently a Shia army. And these Shia are young, they're new recruits, and they're there for one reason only, and that is because they need the money. And this was why Mosul fell. The reason Mosul has been taken back is because the army has been bolstered with Iranian professionals, and with large, large militias everywhere, Shiite militias everywhere, and Hezbollah is in there as well. And they have gone in flying Shiite flags, uh, Hezbollah flags, uh, Iranian flags, and they have reconquered uh, Mosul. The fight has been very sectarian, and lots of lots of terrible stories about horrendous abuses against. Uh, against Sunni civilians. So it's very, very messy. This is not uh, as simple as what it might sound uh, in the mainstream media. Elizabeth, let's just pause for a moment because I don't want listeners to be left behind. I, Whenever we're talking about these issues of uh, Sunnis and Shias and uh, the sectarian elements that are within Islam, sometimes that needs a, a fresh explanation each time we talk about these uh, because yeah. no one in the mainstream media seems to be talking about the sectarian issues that are at play and uh, when we've seen what's happened in Mosul and you're talking about uh, Sunnis and of course the ISIS is a Sunni-based rebel terrorist organisation, a movement Uh, and then there's these Shias. Uh, A quick explanation of of the ongoing battle that goes on between Sunnis and Shias within Islam. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a conflict that goes right back to the early days of Islam. And my book, After Saturday Comes Sunday, devotes a whole chapter to explaining, to explaining this. Um, the, originally, uh, there were four. After Muhammad died, there was no successor, so they elected um, the, the first four caliphs. Now, there was a disagreement about how you should elect a caliph or who would rule over the Muslims. And the Sunnis, who were the majority, were the ones who said, we should follow the Sunnah. That is the Arab tradition of just electing a strong man to be our ruler. Um, 
and uh, we don't need uh, anything special, just someone who's strong and who can protect us. That's the tradition, that's the Sunnah, and they became known as the Sunnis. But there was another group within the Islamic community that said, no, no, we believe that, that God, that Allah's choice of Muhammad to be the messenger of Islam was significant. And uh, that only someone who is a, a blood descendant, a blood relative of the Prophet, uh, ha- would have the, the divine authority and the divine gifting to rule over Muslims. But they were in a minority. And they, they became known as the Shiites. And they were persecuted. And there was like a civil, bit of a civil war within Islam during this time. And uh, Ali, the fourth caliph, who was a Shiite, he fled the uh, he fled uh, the Arabian Peninsula and went up to what is uh, now southern Iraq, and he became very close to the Persians. The Persians didn't like the Arabs. The Shiites were being persecuted by the Sunni Arabs, and so they came together. The Shiites, the Shiite Arabs, and the Persians came together. But what the thing is now, you see. Per, uh, Shiite ideology, this Shiite belief that only a blood descendant can rule over Muslims, that delegitimizes all the Sunni rulers that have ever lived, including today's Sunni rulers, because they're not blood descendants of, of Muhammad. So it's a, it's a direct threat to the, to the Sunni rulers. And so what the, how, what the Sunnis have done to counter that threat is just to write the, write the Shiites off as heretics that need to be killed. So it's almost like an existential battle between these two sects uh, to see which will come out on top. And for us, we're Christians, so we're not aligned with either side. But the trouble is, individuals and nations tend to want to take sides. Uh, so you've got nations that support the Sunnis and nations that support the Shias. And uh, while we as Christians are looking on, and uh, I remember talking to someone at one time and uh, and they were saying, well, uh, we might go in and take sides and support the Shias, uh, but then uh, when we leave the conflict, having felt like we've won, uh, then it doesn't matter which side wins, the Sunnis or the Shias, uh, they both go and bulldoze the Christian churches. Uh, so uh, when we talk about being a Christian, we're looking on from a distance, but nations tend to take sides here. Uh, what are your thoughts on nations taking sides and perhaps uh, how things look in the Middle East in a broad picture, Elizabeth? Well, the na- nations take sides according to their interests, not really because they favour one particular ideology or one particular Islamic theological position over the other. So, for example, uh, Iran, uh, Iran is Shia, uh, Russia and China, uh, they are allied with Iran and they generally have, but that's because they have problems with Sunni militants in their own country. So China is battling Sunni militants, Wahhabi Sunni militants, the militants that have the ideology of Saudi Arabia cause all sorts of havoc in Western China. Likewise in Russia, Southern Russia, Chechnya, Dagestan, that whole region is, uh, you know, terrorized by Sunni Wahhabi militants. So 
Russia and China have problems with Sunni militancy that they see as being the outworking of Saudi Arabian you know, uh, sponsorship of, mili- of, of Islamic jihadist uh, Sunni thought. But they have no problems with any Iranians. They have no problems with Shia, Shia militants. They're not bothering Iran or China. So they can have quite comfortable relationships with Iran. And they're all allied together against the Sunnis. The Americans and the West, on the other hand, uh, is backing the Sunnis, not really because they prefer Sunni ideology, but over geopolitical and economic issues. They are allied to them because of uh, uh, treaties and oil deals and oil concessions and things like that. So it's not, it's not a preference to do with which ideology they follow. It's, it's all geopolitical. So it would be a wrong thing to say that because Australia is a part of this coalition, War on Terror, which has a tendency to side with the Shias. Uh, well, it's interesting because uh, because America does deals with uh, the Sunnis. As you say, it's uh, it's economic, but but there it's important, isn't it, as to... Uh, because these things are not discussed in the way that uh, are meaningful when it comes to the ideologies, uh, because if you've got uh, nations supporting uh, various uh, supporters of different sides of the uh, divide within Islam, I mean, it's get, that's where it gets so, so messy. Oh, it's, it's so messy. It's just unbelievable. In fact, with the Western powers, so America and Australia and the UK and, and Germany and everyone, they're supporting Shias in Iraq. In fact, they have enabled the Shias to come to power in Iraq and are now supporting the, the, the Shia Iraqi army and all its, all its attendant Shia militias in Iraq. And right on the other side of the border, they're supporting Arab militias. They're supporting Sunni militias. So they're supporting each side of the conflict on different sides of the border. That's how absolutely messy it is. Um, well, it, it seems to indicate to me that it, uh, it means that people at the top end of uh, these governments, of these nations, have no idea about the divides that are religiously motivated within Islam. They're only interested in the dollars at the end of the day and the economic deals. And what is, in fact, uh, compounding the challenges is the fact that there is ignorance in government as to what these ideologies mean. Yes, look, there's ignorance. And, and I don't even know that it's ignorance as much as just a willful denial, because it's, it's not even just a denial about... Uh, things to do with like Sunnis and Shias. It's a denial about the ultimate intentions of Islam at all. And this, this sort of position that keeps getting taken that, you know, that the Islamists are just some sort of radical faction that don't represent Islam. I mean, all this is, is just, I think, willful denial as much as it is in some cases, uh, ignorance. What's missing in the whole equation? Is, is the Christians <laughs> and who happen to be the indigenous people of the region. You know, I've just, in, 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 as I was preparing, you know, for this discussion, I made sure I was right up to date with a whole lot of reading on, on the fall of Mosul, not just some articles, but several, um, analyses. And, you know, I never saw the Assyrians mentioned once. 
The Assyrians, the Christian people who are the indigenous people of this region, it's almost as if they don't exist. Well, let's spend a few moments just looking at some of that history because when we think of Mosul, it hasn't always been known as Mosul. In fact, we're talking about the biblical city of Nineveh. So we've got this Judeo-Christian heritage, and as you say, uh, with the Assyrian peoples, uh, this is their area, and that was a very long-held Christian stronghold. Well, that's right. I mean, if you read your Old Testament, you know, this is from, you know, this was where Sennacherib uh, had his headquarters in Nineveh. And the old city of Nineveh and the uh, sort of the archaeological area is just opposite Mosul on the other side of the river, on the other side of the Tigris River. So that's where Sennacherib, you know, sent his armed forces out into Syria and Israel and Judah. And the Assyrian people, they, became, they, you know, they received Jonah and then they received the message of Jonah and became uh, followers of Yahweh, uh, worshippers of Yahweh. And then they, uh, they received the news about the, the resurrection of Jesus and they became followers of Jesus Christ in the first century. And one of the first denominations or the first denomination I think ever created was the Assyrian Church of the East. And that's where it was, uh, that whole area from, uh, from uh, Nineveh up through the, the headwaters of the two rivers into southern Turkey. This was the, uh, the birthplace, really, the stronghold of the, of the early church. Sent missionaries right out into China. And, um, and these people today, the remnant of a remnant of a remnant of the Assyrian people, are just struggling to survive. And... When you read about what's happening in Iraq today, they barely even get a mention. And I think it's absolutely shameful. And I think instead of supporting the Shias in Iraq and the Sunnis in, in Syria, the West should really be looking at preserving you know, the minorities, caring about the indigenous people, and seeing if we can preserve uh, you know, the Fertile Crescent or Mesopotamia as a safe place for minorities, um, I think I think they've completely lost the plot with the policy in the Middle East. In fact, I wonder if they really have a policy at all. A biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Well, we're talking about the city of Mosul, and we're talking about Iraq, but what we're talking about is just as relevant for us here in Australia as it is for all of those who are going through the circumstances, the challenges in the Middle East, because the war on terror doesn't have any borders. It seriously is everywhere. Inviting you to be part of our conversation today on 1-800-316-316. You might have a question. You might have an insight. You might have a comment to make. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest. In fact, Elizabeth, let's take a call or two. Let's first of all hear from John in Somerset in Tasmania. Hello, John. Welcome along. Uh, good morning, uh, Neil and Elizabeth. There are two things that I'm thinking about. Uh, am I correct in understanding that Qatar, which is currently in a standoff with uh, Saudi Arabia and the other Persian Gulf allies of Saudi Arabia, uh, is at the moment receiving courtesy of Turkey an equivalent of the Berlin airlift to keep the country running. I gather it's blockaded because it's sided with Iraq. Does that mean then that the Saudis 
and their supporters actually are, in some sense, fighting on two fronts, because uh, if Iraq is across the north of Iraq and into eastern Syria, and the people in South Yemen uh, are are, uh, being supported by the uh, Iraqi militant, the Irani militants, uh, that puts Saudi Arabia and her allies in a sandwich. Of John, this is a great question. It illustrates what we've been talking about. Uh, Elizabeth Kendall, your response for John. Oh, great question, John. Absolutely. Now, I've got a piece uh, that I've written on, and I've put it up on my Religious Liberty Monitoring blog, and it's called A Brief Guide to Middle Eastern Alliances. And I just put that up there a couple of weeks ago to explain what is happening in the Middle East, particularly with regards to Qatar. Now, the Middle East is divided not just with three imperial powers, Turkey, Iran and Saudi Arabia, and not just sectarian, in terms of sectarian alliance, the Sunni and the Shia, but also in terms of a political alliance between what I have always called the Turkey-Arab-Sunni axis, and the axis of resistance, which is the Iranian-led, Shiite-dominated axis, which is basically an east-west axis. Now, the Sunni uh, axis, the Turkey-Arab-Sunni axis, is not as united as people think because it's split along pro- and anti-Muslim brotherhood lines. So Saudi Arabia and Egypt, although Egypt's a little bit on, on the edge of this discussion, and, Bar- and other Gulf Arab states are strongly anti-Muslim Brotherhood because they are threatened by the Muslim Brotherhood, whereas Qatar and Turkey are strongly pro-Muslim Brotherhood. So this has been a constant source of contention between these two factions on that side of the Syrian conflict. And, the, and uh, Qatar, through its media arm, Al Jazeera, which really works as a tool of foreign policy and can be used by Qatar to, to interfere in other countries, uh, that is really the bone of contention here. And Saudi Arabia and Egypt and the others, they want Al Jazeera shut down. So they've come out against Qatar at this time. And Turkey, being its main Muslim Brotherhood ally, has risen to the occasion uh, to stand with it. I, I don't know the degree to, to how much support it's offering. I know they immediately said they'd send uh, hundreds, uh, thousands, it was, of troops down to Qatar, but I think they've backed off because they don't want to find themselves isolated too much. But um, So that, that's another problem. And, yes, Saudi Arabia is fighting on two fronts. Is fighting in uh, in Syria and in Yemen, and what they have done in Yemen is one of the great crimes against humanity. I think in this era, um, they have now blockaded Yemen, and uh, the people are starving and dying in in uh, large numbers. It's absolutely appalling. So you know they they point the finger at Qatar and say Qatar is a funder of uh, sponsor of terror, and yet Saudi Arabia itself is one of the world's leading sponsors of terror and supporters of international Islamic Jihad. It's total hypocrisy. John from Somerset, I hope that was a helpful response for you. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call from Ray in Jeeveston in Tasmania. Hello, Ray. Welcome along. 
Hi, good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning. I was just wanting to ask you two things. First of all, the dilemma that both you and um, the, the Vision Radio have, that you deal with truth, absolute truth, whereas politicians and leaders in this country are pragmatic, which is a license to, to lie. And so they join with the Islamists, who also is a pragmatic religion. So how do you connect with someone with truth when they don't believe in truth? And secondly, my wife Penny wanted to know what's the source of the word Arab. Elizabeth. I don't know what the source of the word Arab is. You'll have to ask someone else, someone a, a linguist or someone who's got good knowledge of uh, the history of the Arab nation. I imagine it's a very, very ancient word, uh, you know, re- representing a tribe of people. I think it goes back a long way. Concerning how to connect with uh, uh, politicians and that. Now, I do, I work as a director of advocacy for Christian faith and freedom, and this is an issue that I I deal with all, uh, all the time. And uh, ever since I was working with World Evangelical Alliance and other groups, I've had to consider this issue. And in fact, my first book, um, Turn Back the Battle, is really a, a response to how I view the work of advocacy. Um, I see the work of, of advocacy almost in, almost in like the work of, of a prophetic voice. So, I don't believe that advocacy has power in and of itself to uh, to achieve anything, if anything at all. Because, you, but what we are called to do is to speak truth, and God does the rest. So we, the person who advocates, whether it's myself when I'm talking to uh, the DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, whether it's Vision when they're um, broadcasting, uh, whatever the whether it's you when you talk to your neighbour over the back fence, the work is, the job is to speak the truth. That's all you do. Uh, what God does the rest with it. And I, I take as my role model in this the prophet Isaiah himself. So he spoke to the king. He was called to speak to the king. He spoke to Ahaz, and then in the next generation he spoke to King Hezekiah. And the, the, the result was up to God. And he trusted God for everything. So he did not put his faith in his diplomacy. He did not put faith in his advocacy. He did not put faith in the political process. He just spoke the truth. And that's all you can do. And And, um, I'm going to have to cut in because we're about to go to news, Elizabeth. Thank you Mm -hmm. so much to Ray in Jeeveston in Tasmania for your call. We'll take some more calls after the news. Two books she has authored. Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, and After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. And I must say a special congratulations to you, uh, as so far as your book, Elizabeth Kendall, After Saturday Comes Sunday, has been shortlisted for the Australian Christian Book of the Year. That's quite an honour in itself. It is, and I'm I'm really pleased because um, it... It will do great things for the cause of raising awareness of the plight of Christians in the Middle East. And uh, it shows that the, the judges uh, saw this as a, not just as a good book, but as, a, as an issue that uh, is of relevance to the Australian Christian community. 
And that may be encouragement for listeners to get a hold of it. After Saturday comes Sunday, understanding the Christian crisis in the Middle East. Uh, Before we move on, uh, just a a quick recount of what your title means. After Saturday comes Sunday, for some people who are thinking about the Middle East, that sounds pretty unusual. So uh, a quick recount on what that means, that title. Well, the title, uh, After Saturday Comes Sunday, is actually a, an Arab war cry that has been popularised in recent uh, decades by groups like Hamas and in Arabic. What it, means, what it means is that after Saturday, that is the days that the Jews worship, comes Sunday, the days that the Christians worship, and just as we're going to get rid of the Jews, then we're going to get rid of the Christians. So it's a threat, you know, after we kill the Jews, we're going to kill the Christians. After the day of the Jews comes the day of the Christians. So it's a, it's a threat to eliminate the Christians. And you cannot understand what is happening to the Christian communities in the Middle East unless you really come to see and understand how serious is that threat. And uh, my last chapter in the book, chapter 12, I actually take that, that threat after Saturday comes Sunday, and run it through a theology of the cross. And uh, it turns out that through a theology of the cross, we can see that God is at work in the Middle East, and there's a lot of evidence to show that he is, just as he was during the darkness, uh, the darkest times of the crucifixion, when everyone thought that God was dead and the world had won, God was actually doing something amazing. And, uh, and uh, Sunday did come. Uh, we've been talking about the northern Iraqi city of Mosul and uh, what some might describe as a liberation of the city. And we've been talking about those sectarian lines uh, by which that has happened. Uh, we've been talking about something of the history of Mosul as the ancient city of Nineveh uh, and as an area that was populated so much by uh, Christian uh, peoples uh, when the church was uh, formed into uh, denominations in that city of Mosul and throughout that Assyrian area. Uh, when we talk about those sorts of things, Elizabeth Kendall, um, we might be thinking about what Christians might be in Mosul today, but I doubt whether the there were many left after ISIS came to power in Mosul. What are your concerns for Christians, not only in Mosul, but in that surrounding area and into Syria? Well, I'd suggest that there were no Christians left. They were pretty well driven out. The only ones that weren't driven out were then given an ultimatum by ISIS. ISIS moved on Baghdad and were driven back and they settled and consolidated in Mosul uh, declared a caliphate and gave the remaining Christians, uh, which were not very many, I might add, they gave them just an, just like 24 hours to pack up and get out. And if they didn't pack up and get out, they would have to pay the jizya, which is an Islamic, uh, some people call it a tax, but it's really an extortion money. It's protection money. You don't pay it, you die. So it's an, a protection money. Or you have to, con- and if you don't pay, then you have to convert to Islam or die. So they were given like 24 hours to, to make that choice and get out. So the last remaining Christians left in, in uh, July, I think it was, of 2014. And the only people who remained at that point, as, in terms of Christians, were very frail, elderly people who couldn't be moved. And if they could not pay Jizya, they would have been killed. And then in August, in the first week of August, ISIS overran 
the whole of the Nineveh plains. That's the, the like the heartland of the Assyrian people, and they ethnically cleansed the whole area. So um, yeah, so there's really I would not think there are any Christians left in in Mosul at all. Some are beginning to make their way back some of the villages in the in the Nineveh plains but it's just not safe enough it's very very dangerous and and with a place like Mosul now a lot of the villages in the Nineveh plains were almost exclusively Assyrian so Assyrians are hoping that they'll be able to go back there but they probably will not go back to Mosul because in Mosul one of the things that was so devastating was that when ISIS came in many many Muslims celebrated ISIS's coming. So while many Muslims fled, that's true, many actually celebrated and said, hooray, hooray, you know, our, our saviors are here. We don't have to be ruled by the Shiite government in Baghdad anymore. We're going to be an Islamic caliphate, the Sunnis rule. And a lot of the Sunnis that stayed actually drove the Christians from their homes or pointed out the Christian homes or looted Christian homes. We've seen the same thing happen in Syria, in places like Malula and other places where uh, Muslims actually turned on their Christian neighbours uh, when the jihadists came in. And even in places like Central African Republic and faraway countries, we've seen the same phenomenon happen. Muslims who lived side by side with Christians, when they thought that, oh, hooray, we're going to come out on top here, suddenly switch sides and what that does is it shatters community trust and the fabric of society is just torn to shreds so most christians who fled mosul uh, feel quite strongly that they will probably uh, never return so the future of mosul is really uh, really uncertain at the moment um, uh, there's still clashes going on in mosul now there was a, a special committee convened uh, by the Kurds and uh, the Baghdad government and the US to work out a, a post-liberation strategy, but that committee actually never even sat. They never even got together. And many of the Sunnis believe that the government is dragging its heels and actually doesn't want the Sunnis uh, coming back into Mosul. So there's a lot of dis-unease and I think what we might see could be something similar to what happened after the U.S. surge in Iraq. Back in 2006 and 2007, U.S. forces uh, defeated al-Qaeda in Iraq in Anbar and Diyala provinces around the outskirts of Baghdad there, but they reappeared in Mosul. And uh, I think we're going to see something like that happen here. We're going to see... Uh, all, a lot of ISIS uh, jihadis, a lot of ISIS sympathisers will have fled Mosul and at the right time when they feel comfortable they're going to reappear uh, in cells, in even battalions in different areas and I, this is just going to move to another stage really. Uh, we might talk some more about what happens next uh, but let me ask you a question that I know will be on the lips of some listeners when we talk about uh, these different sectarian groups within Islam and uh, where ISIS has been displaced now largely out of Mosul 
uh, Sunni-related ISIS, uh, displaced by the Shia uh, Muslims that have come in and so-called liberated the city. When we talk about Christians in Mosul, and there was a substantial population there, and you say that they might never come back, is it likely that the Shias, having overtaken the city, will actually be more open to the idea of Christians returning? Or is jihad the same across both of those sects within Islam? Oh, that's really interesting. We're, we're in countries where the Shia have been minorities, uh, they have been very uh, much in favour of religious freedom. If you look at a country like Pakistan, the Bhutos, for example, were Shias. And when the Bhutos were in power, they were very strong on religious freedom. Uh, it's not uncommon for religious minorities to be big defenders of religious freedom. But when the Shias are in the majority, as they are in Iran, and as they are in Iraq, particularly through southern Iraq and now in Baghdad, there's not a lot of love for Christians. Um, they just don't, they don't need to defend religious freedom in such a situation. And they just have no love for, for them. There's just, I, I wouldn't trust a Shia, I would not trust a Shia militia uh, coming up against, uh, you know, a Christian family in, in a city like Mosul any more than I would trust a Sunni militia, I'm afraid. You know, I just, I, um, I, I don't think, you know, uh, I think um, the, the Iraqi president, uh, uh, Abadi, has been saying all the right things saying, you know, we can build a non-sectarian city and have a, you know, non-sectarian state, but I just don't know that if that's even... I don't know if he really intends that or if that's just rhetoric or if he he, he will say that while the Iranians sort of flood in. Uh, Iran has very clear interests in creating a a clean road from Tehran through the north of Iraq, through Mosul, and through Tel Afar and Sinjar and on into Syria. So I don't think they're just going to... um, I don't think they're going to be too keen to lose a lot of power there. And I think that the uh, the Sunnis will, will very well reappear. All right. We'll talk some more about what happens next in just a few moments, but let's take a call. Graham is in Tasmania. Hello, Graham. Welcome along. Hello. You know, the world is in a dreadful state, you know, and God is actually, because of our nations, our peoples, those who have known God, have turned away. God is going to punish us first that know God, and then he's going to punish the Gentiles. And God is doing, allowing all this to happen to punish us, that our governments will turn to God, but they're not going to turn to God. And this is going to increase and increase. And uh, so there it is. Uh, Graham, an interesting insight, and it does sound very pessimistic, but there's going to be some foundation biblically to what you're saying. Your thoughts on Graham's comment, Elizabeth Kendall? Well, I actually agree that God is actually uh, doing a work of uh, of punishment. I think that there is um, uh, a degree to which God is... um, uh, is acting against the West at the moment. I believe that you know, some people say it's all because of things like you know abortion and and pornography and same-sex marriage and homosexuality. I have a tendency actually to think that that while that's part of it, I think the 
for a century or for more than a century even, the West really, really abandoned and betrayed the Christians of the Middle East, the Christians of the Ottoman Empire, as it was at the time, to as, as they suffered pogrom after pogrom and massacre after massacre. It really started with the Crimean War when Britain and France came in on the side of the, the Ottoman Turks against Russia, which was in the Balkans in defence of persecuted Christians. And from there it just got worse. And... Uh uh, Elizabeth, I think we might have lost you. You might have dropped out. If you can hear me, I will try and get in touch with you uh, as soon as possible. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest. We did have a little drop out there. Sometimes these happen with uh, with live radio, but Elizabeth Kendall, I think we... Uh, did uh, adequately answer the uh, the query of our last uh, caller, Graham, uh, but uh, we were talking about, uh, you know, God's punishment. You were actually uh, delivering some sort of thought on God's punishment, and uh, I was wondering uh, who you thought God was punishing. Is there is there some way you can just sort of perhaps uh, just round off what you were saying before we dropped out? Yes, well, I, sometimes I must admit I look at what's happening today with the with the in, enormous influx of uh, Muslim migrants into Europe, and I just wonder, and the trouble that this is causing in Europe, and I wonder if maybe uh, the very thing that that the West uh, abandoned Eastern Christians to is now coming to us, or you know, coming to us. I just. That's what I wonder, and but I, I'm not as pessimistic. Uh, I'm not as pessimistic as Graham. I actually believe, and this is what I, the point I make in after Saturday comes Sunday, that even in the midst of the darkest, darkest times, God is at work because that's the sort of God He is. He comes into the darkness. He He came into our world, and He comes into our crises. He comes into the the reality of the situation. And he inserts himself, and from deep within the, t- the terrible, terrible times, he redeems and he transforms. And you know, when you when you have, think and you read about what God is doing in the Middle East, the number of Muslims that are coming to faith in Christ, the disillusionment that is rippling through the Muslim world, God is at work. And I'm not I'm not as pessimistic. I don't think. Well, this draws us to an issue that we often like to talk about at the end of a conversation like ours today, and that is how we as Australian Christian believers might be praying for our brothers and sisters who are going through this intense level of persecution in the Middle East. Now, Mosul, just uh, one simple illustration, isn't it, that uh, that Christians were driven out of that city. Uh, where were they driven to? Were they just across borders into uh, those refugee camps? But when we say that perhaps in the last hundred years we may have neglected our responsibility for our brothers and sisters in places like the Middle East, uh, what is it that we ought to be praying for now? How ought we be adjusting our attitudes to how we deal with these issues of persecution? Your thoughts, Elizabeth Kendall? Well, concerning the, our governments and our power, the powers of the West, they seem to have little or no interest in helping the Christians of the Middle East. 
and I believe it is absolutely incumbent upon the church to help their brothers and sisters through uh, constantly speaking out uh, by giving generously. So, uh, you know, give generously to help the Christians of the Middle East. They are going to need help, not just surviving with uh, food and medicines, but with education, with rebuilding, with everything. And pray for them. I mean, we have to pray. Uh, God answers prayer, and God will sustain them. He's not going to. He's not going to abandon His people, and we should be praying, praying for those people all the time. And uh, you know, there's there's really dark days looming for the Assyrians. The Kurds are going to have a have a referendum in September uh, over over independence and uh, ownership of Kirkuk. And this could cause real, real problems for the Christians who are now hunkered down in Erbil, in Iraqi Kurdistan. If, uh, if a new war uh, breaks out over Kirkuk and northern Iraq, then, then you know, 200,000 displaced Christians are going to be right in the middle of that. But the church has the ultimate responsibility, I believe, to speak, to give and to pray. And God will not abandon his people, but he, and he calls us to pray for them. And I believe if we will do what we are called to do, God will honor it. And we will see uh, that great promise of Isaiah 19, uh, Assyria, the work of my hands, it will exist because God is faithful. And just a little plug for some of the organisations that work with persecuted believers, uh, organisations like Open Doors, uh, organisations like the one that you are an advocate for, Elizabeth Kendall, uh, Christian Faith and Freedom. Those organisations that are either advocates for the persecuted church or actually providing real substantial aid to churches to keep them afloat. Uh, there's lots of those sorts of organisations, Barnabas Fund, uh, uh, you've got uh, Operation Mobilisation, uh, there's others like Voice of the Martyrs, wonderful organisations that actually they need support, don't they? They need prayer warriors, they need financial uh, resources. This is where Christian believers can make a real difference. Oh, absolutely. And on my website, elizabethkendall.com, there's a little tab up the top called Action. And under there, it explains how you can help. And when it comes to, to giving, uh, there are so many organizations, actually. There are Protestant organizations, Orthodox organizations, Catholic organizations like Caritas and Aid to the Church in Need. There are non-denominational organizations like, like Barnabas and, and, Christian so and Christian Solidarity and Christian Faith and Freedom. There are so many that what I just recommend people do is that they pray about it. Commit to giving and pray and pray that God will show you how to give and who to give to and God will open the door and you can guarantee God will have it covered. And, um, you know, Christian Faith and Freedom had a wonderful experience with this during the time when rebel forces had Aleppo besieged and uh, through just through prayer... Someone introduced me to a, to a um, to Australian missionaries who'd been in in uh, Syria for uh, some time and were now looking for a way to support uh, the churches that they'd been working with in in Aleppo, and through the contact that was then basically put on a plate and laid in front of me, we were able to funnel 
uh, funds into um, into an evangelical church in Aleppo that not only kept those people alive but enabled them to share with their Muslim neighbours during a really, really difficult 12 months. So just pray about it and trust God to show you how to give and and pray and pray and pray that God will sustain and protect and deliver his people. Well, we often ask that question, who is our neighbor? Well, our neighbors are closer than they've ever been in the history of the world. And uh, some good encouragement there. Elizabeth Kendall, you said there's a list of those sorts of organizations that people can support uh, on your website. I'll encourage people to simply Google Elizabeth Kendall and you'll come across uh, the, uh, the, uh, the the websites that uh, Elizabeth hosts. Uh, you'll also find out how you can get a hold of her books. Turn back the battle. Isaiah speaks to Christians today. And after Saturday comes Sunday, understanding the Christian crisis in the Middle East. And we did mention it's been shortlisted for the Australian Christian Book of the Year. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking some time to share your heart with us again today on 2020. Thank you very much, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.